It's time to talk music, audio gear, and anything else that crosses our minds. I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. And welcome to the Hareton Audio Podcast. So, in our adventures of getting into the band called The Main, um, we watched their docu- docu-series on YouTube called Miserable Youth about how they recorded their brand new album, The Main. And what's really interesting when you look at any sort of docu-series is the process of which different bands go into different studio environments and create completely different sounding albums. And the thing with it is, is that no two studios and no two bands operate in the same way when they're making a record. But a lot of the time, people say their albums have like the same type of polish. So what I wanted to talk about today was just the different environments that records can be made in and you know not even how that affects the record but just like how it affects the people making the record well another example of a docu-series from this year is uh, nothing but thieves they had a great run on their new album uh, welcome to the dcc or dead club city um the album's called dead club city isn't it <laughs> yeah the song's called welcome to the dcc but they had a really, really good series on, and they took like a, a barn sort of situation and built it into a studio just for like a couple of months or or something. And that was interesting in itself because they had a bit like what you're saying with the mains. They they was intending um to record everything in there, and then um I believe the main chose to do the drums in a different room. Also chose to do the uh drums separate to the cymbals, which is a quite a common technique, I'd say now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, Nothing But Thieves on their docu-series, which I'd highly recommend you watch both of these on YouTube if you're into recording, particularly rock, uh, modern rock recording. They wanted to record drums in this this room, this barn area, and they could not do it because of the acoustics. So I think it's, it's more because they wanted a quite modern sounding saturated drum sound where maybe they're putting uh, light drives or distortions on some of the drums or really, really like getting and doing like serious processing where that early reflection that you might have in a room, which may be perfectly fine if you're making a jazz or a, a classic rock or an acoustic record where you go, well, that's, that's fine because as long as we can hear the drum and it doesn't sound like horrible, it'll work. You know, because at the end of the day, there was in a, a relatively treated space as far as home recording goes. But because they wanted to really, really push the production to the um, limit, they had to go record their drums in uh, Metropolis Studios, I believe. Yes. And I think the other thing with like Nothing But Thieves and these um, more big bands is that obviously they have a, a standard and they'll because they'll have been doing it themselves, they'll have held themselves to such a high standard where they'll have said, well, we can't get the sound we want or that we've heard other studios do. So we want to go to a studio and get that sound there, that specific sound that they was looking for as well. Yeah, and I think like the main was doing the same thing because if you listen through the main self-titled album, which is their newest album, don't, don't be uh, surprised by that. Um their drum sound is very similar. It's quite a distorted, or not even distorted, but it's an overdriven, saturated snare drum and uh, sort of tom sound. And I, I think that's why they opted to do their cymbals separate from their drums to allow 
for that amount of processing because obviously if you throw a overdrive on a snare drum not only does it you know make it sound a bit crunchier but it in effect compresses and does tonal sculpting and all sorts especially if you use like um a, a pedal or like a plugin that has stuff you can't see because a lot of the time you'll use a device be it a boss uh, od1 or say a built-in cubase or pro tools or ableton drive it's easy to think oh well this is going to saturate the sound but most of these plugins and the ones that sound better normally are doing things that you can't see like tonal shaping EQ, uh, filtering and stuff like that. And and a lot of them do have high pass and low pass filters because if you just throw, uh, say you throw a Boss DS1 on a full frequency cymbal track, you're going to get some weird sounds. Like it's not going to be good. I think the other thing when we're talking about distorted snare drums and stuff is just the way uh, distortion in general as an effect or, or any kind of like harmonic saturation affects background noise or should we say like the signal to noise Yes. Ratio. So if you've got that tiniest bit of hi-hat bleed where you're like, oh, well, I can't really hear that. It's not, or, or you know, it sits well in the in the mix. The second you put uh, a distortion on that snare track, that bit of bleed of the hi-hat is going to be, you know, unmixable. And it's also going to yeah. be unruly. And you're not going to be able to control it or filter it out with EQs because it's always going to be rumbling. And chances are you want distortion on your snare, but not on your hat. I mean, hats... I, I know like one of the big producer memes that you often see is just putting distortion on everything, every track in the session. And I, I know that distortion, it's somewhat of a divisive word because like we say, a lot of the time it is light saturation or, or light overdrive that is used, not necessarily distortion or fuzz or anything. And also you see things like, I don't know if anybody else has ever seen these Amazon reviews, but the amount of like particularly modern albums with like very... Uh, interesting production where they push it to the limit you will see like audiophiles who buy the vinyl on uh, who buy the vinyl on amazon say well it's distorting and you go well it's not the vinyl that's distorting it's the record because they've put that sound yeah in the instruments and they're like well but it's crackling it's like no but that's how it sounds on spotify and it's not even that it's clipping the meters it's that it is naturally just distorted it has distorted the sounded. sound but deliberately but the record itself may not be clipping and it's I mean, such a strange thing to explain to somebody who doesn't do production because they're not going to think of that if you're just purely a listener and you're thinking about how the record is made i mean a great song that demonstrates this because i have it on vinyl is um biffy clara's um oh now i'm not gonna get it wrong north of no south Oh, okay. The yeah, opening from, track yeah. on a, a celebration of endings. Um, I'm sure it's north of No South. Because uh, that has like distorted harmonies um, yeah. very early on. So it's, it's you know, it's not even like in the full mix context. It's like right at the start of the song, there's like a A line and then the B line is like a distorted harmony. Yeah, you are right. It is north of No South. Yeah, it's just one of those where I haven't had to say it very often. So I was like north of No South. <laughs> but... That one is a great one for this example. You put your vinyl on, you have an extremely clear lead vocal, followed by a somewhat overdriven three-part, presumably, harmony. And you think, oh, wow, that's odd. That's very unusual. If you haven't listened to that song on CD or on streaming, you might think, well, that shouldn't sound like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and um, funny enough as well, uh, I believe Biffy Clara did a little docu-series 
uh, on YouTube for that. Or was it part of like a, a TV special? No, or I think the they did do a docu-series. I remember watching them in the farm recording yeah. that album. Yeah, because they're, they're one of their things, which is quite interesting, if you are recording in a, a farm, which apparently pro bands love to do this. It's I more think it's, common than you would think, isn't it? I think it's Queen's fault because they did one of theirs in the barn. Is it what? Oh, I don't know which studio it's called. The one they do Bohemian Rhapsody in is a barn. But they had an electric fence and that was interfering with their Pro Tools HD rig, if you remember. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. It was blipping. Great. Another great one to watch because you think, um, wow, well, I've got all this equipment and you might have spent a lot of money on the equipment or maybe not, but either way, some things should just work in theory. You might find that you have some sort of thing in your room, like, I don't know, a fridge or some sort of a... Uh, you know, if, you, if anybody's like working near kitchens and stuff, all them appliances are gonna might mess with your stuff. They might mess with your signal to noise. If you're a guitarist, you might find that your pedals don't sound good because maybe they're, maybe you're, you've got something sort of ungrounded in the earth loop. You know, I'm sort of freeballing, but you know what I'm saying? Like there's something people say called dirty like electricity essentially yeah, yeah if you've if you've uh got too many say appliances or something it might be that your electricity is sort of like not clean as it should be and and this is the other thing like with recording environments particularly like with well home recording and studio recording is is it depends because you have some studios that are homes Yes. Like, say, Rancho de Luna. I feel like I'm getting that right. Rancho de... Is it La Luna? La Luna. From Sonic Highways. Um, Foo Fighters go to... The, uh, I'm going to have to just Google what the well, ranch is called. The Foo Fighters go there on Sonic Highways, but it's the sort of studio where um, Josh Hom or Josh Homme, I can never say his name right, he often records there um, with a lot of his projects. And yes. they do like the desert sessions there. It's Rancho de la Luna. Yeah. So it's close. It's close. Um, but obviously that's just a regular house um, yeah. in Texas. Um, and, sorry, Joshua Tree, not Texas. <laughs> um, the thing is with that one is that uh, also docuseries, Sonic Highways and Sound City but with Dave Grohl, unbelievably good. Sonic Highways, I think, was massively underrated because I just don't remember people talk about it that much. And it's like one of, it is the best sort of recording studio documentary series I think I've ever seen. But what's great about that one is they're all like, well, the rooms aren't treated. This is going to sound bad. And then they do the record there and it doesn't sound bad. It sounds the same as the rest of the album, you know, as close as you could get. And, um, Obviously, they've got some very good people on their team to sort of work through issues like that. But ultimately, if you're using like, if you're using a lot of uh, sort of cab isolation or cab sims, the only two instruments you really have to worry about are um, drums and vocals. So if you can get them right, you're probably fine. Yeah, and the reason I was bringing up Sonic Highways is obviously when you talk about, say, dirty electricity and these sort of things, the other thing is, um, can you hear outside in your house? Like, obviously, a lot of people's houses, if you're recording, you might get, say, like construction noise or people walking by. And what came to my mind was in Sound City, when they went to Preservation Hall, they left the windows open and there was recording and you could hear people walking past whilst there was recording. 
because obviously it's very thin walls. I mean, in Preservation Hall, there was, you know, it was just on the street, wasn't it? It was, yeah. And um, they said that that just adds to the ambience. But, you know, we talk about making everything very clean sounding, but then you have a lot of people mixing crowd noise in instead of white noise because they want it to sound more exciting. I mean, take Bleacher's track, to be honest. There is so much, their new track's called uh, Modern Girl. And it is full of like the band and crew and everybody just singing along. And it just sounds like they're partying in the background. If you really like sit and listen to, to the ambience in that, there's a lot going on. And I, th- I suppose what the argument there is, is that if you have a very sterile recording, yes, it sounds professional. Yes, it sounds clean and everything can be mixed in a way that you desire. But have you in doing that and you know, denoising everything and removing every blip that isn't supposed to be there. Have you actually removed the excitement and the sort of real world atmosphere that is present? I mean, on one of the classic albums, the uh, Grateful Dead talk about recording coloured silence, don't they? Yeah. Like when they just stick a microphone out with nothing. It's not recording anything, but the idea is, is that when they have like a clean splice on the tape and they need some... They need nothing, but they can't just have actual nothing. It has to be something like off a microphone that is nothing. And it's a really bizarre concept because especially in like when you're working digitally in the box, there's sort of like a lot of EDM and and other music, like mainly electronic productions, even pop to a certain extent. There's situations where the entire backing track, there may be no microphone used. Yeah, and you also have like this forced silence you hear with a lot of bands, like one band that really utilizes this that I can think of as Pop Evil because they do that, you know, like just one beat of pure silence, like, you know, digital silence, which is silence like it's almost like a, an implosion sonically yeah. to your ears. And they deliberately use that. And then this is also like with people chopping um, tales of reverbs and stuff to, yes. to make it sound deliberately like you know quiet in in the weirdest way it's almost like you've turned it off entirely but again all these techniques sort of go against the traditional recording handbook you're not really supposed to chop trails off especially like hard cut and really you don't want excess noise that isn't actually part of your production in but these are techniques that pro bands use in order to make give their um, songs more excitement in terms of like noise. I mean, another one, a lot of synthwave artists just leave like hiss. They just have cassette hiss or vinyl hiss going over the top of the entire session. It's like um, when you see the memes, the, the band memes of the artist talking to the engineer, we need to reduce this tape hiss. And then the modern version is we need to add tape hiss to the door because it's, it's too quiet. It's, because it, you want whatever you don't have. Yes. In studios, I find like studios that will have been recording in the seventies, they'll have been trying to get it as clean as possible, but now it's so clean. Everybody has a clean rig. Everybody wants to put all the dirt back on. And that's what you have with bands like Bleachers. Yeah. Is that it, they just want it to sound as old as possible. Like it, it came out 40 years ago. And, and I, that's I sort of their mission when they're recording. Modern Gale really, really captures that. Um, late 80s it's a bit Bruce Springsteen-y but a bit like other stuff I, I feel like I have gaps in my knowledge to know what they're truly tapping into but it's that sort of um, 
it feels very much to me, I think they are from New York, New Jersey sort of area, but it does feel like that New York just cut in a song in like one of the studios. I think the record factory was one of the big ones. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where Jimmy Iovine was, was um, like how he came up in the music industry, but that's the sort of vibe it gives off. And it really, really doesn't miss. Like it's not, it doesn't sound like an interpretation of, or an emulation or anything like that. It literally sounds like they just did it like at that time, it's almost like a time warp sort of song. Like they've they've taken the level of pastiche into such a high level that you know you can't separate what they're trying to show you against what it is, which I think is very very hard to do. Because I think especially in pop music, you hear a lot of people go, "Let's throw in like some eighties sounds," but it never actually sounds like the eighties. It and, and this is true with a lot of synthwave. You know, you are listening to a reimagined, reinterpreted eighties that isn't really the same as what happened. So the way that Bleachers have gone about recording Modern Girl, it's like you're not getting a modern pop rock interpretation of what somebody like Bruce Springsteen might have done with a live band in a room. You are getting an exact sort of, you know, performance with that energy. You know, they're not piping that energy in in post. It feels like it's there for the full recording. Yeah. And it's like, it all depends on what sound you're after. And this is how studios are built. Like you, if you've ever seen pictures of, I think it's Steve Aoki's studio, which is just pure white, like a spaceship almost. You know, it's like like stepping into a sci-fi movie. Then you have approaches like Daniel Lanois, who produced U2, where he just sticks his mixing console in whatever place they can find, whether it's a castle or just a room or, or yeah, anything. I believe um, Joshua Tree by U2 was recorded in a house. Yeah. Just so, a regular house. You know, it depends on your mindset because at the end of the day, any room can be the recording studio. And this is why portable recording so so popular. Even like, say, if you think about Deep Purple, they just had the Rolling Stones portable recording rig and they just set up in hallways of an abandoned hotel, didn't they? Yes, and there's a lot of cases as well. I believe Judas Priest, again, if you're looking for docuseries, classic albums great for classic rock in particular and and also some classic pop but it mainly operates in classic rock and metal uh judas priest used to record a lot in stairwells they just put a mic in a stairwell yeah in a mansion or something there was in was it ringo Starr's house yeah one of them was definitely done in ringo I feel Starr's like that's house. judas priest uh recording ringo Starr's house to put mics uh at the bottom of the stairwell to capture yeah. the guitar reverb i'm and sure lot, that's correct a lot of the time uh, these particularly went before we had like digital emulations of reverb that is so easy to use they would just go to the bathroom and go right towels that's really reverberant we can get yeah. like a an easy sound off that or a different sound and i suppose in a way like with most things in this day and age the information's so available and everybody can learn anything but you don't get to trial and test things for yourself because you know that other people's done it before you have so i suppose in a way, you lose creativity, you know, like if you're getting all of your information from, say, TikTok or Instagram, because it's all tried and tested information instead of like the bands in the 70s and the 60s, like, say, the Beatles, they was just like, well, we, we're the first, one of the first bands that have complete creative control of Abbey Road, so we're just going to stick mics where they shouldn't be and break all the rules, and then obviously people liked it, 
and people then try to copy what they did in different ways all throughout the 70s. I suppose, like, the argument is, if you're trusting to use, like, say, Valhalla, Reverbs, or Lexicon, or Waves, or whatever it is, or you built in Ableton once, like, a lot of the doors have great sounding built-in effects. I mean, why would you ever stick a mic in your shower and try and record the reverb in that room? Well, the answer is because not everybody else can do that, and that's the full philosophy you hear all the time about not using stock plugins and not using stock instruments or, 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 you know, trying to bring things out of the box, you know, it's like you might have say a DBX, um, or what's the one Daft Punk uses? Is it three? Oh, an Alesis, uh, 3630. Uh, yes. I meant to say Alesis 3630. I was trying to look at the name cause we have one, but what my point is, is that going to sound anything like the one Daft Punk used? Potentially not. We might have one made in a different sort of year we might have one with different capacitors built in so the point is like when everybody's using the same virtual recreation of a plugin you all have essentially the exact same thing if you go out and buy a dbx 36 i'll say it again at least this 3630 or a dbx 168 um you might have one and your mate might have one and you might shoot them out and go well your sound's different to mine because analog equipment is like that and this is what they say about shore mics as well like you've got to find good sounding shore mics or, or they're so inconsistent at 57s that you know you can put if you want a matched pair you have to sort of record them and test them but also this is why people like the bleachers video obviously comes again in the music video not probably what they recorded the song with obviously you've got a massive whopping dint in the front of his sm58 yeah and that's sort of leaning into this of that didn't will make that microphone behave differently because yes. that's why they've got the um the full i can't remember the what they call the actual sound shaping for the polar pattern um but yeah that's why they make them and if you didn't the mics it's going to capture things differently it's the same as cupping the mics isn't it yeah it completely changes the way that the the um polar pattern works essentially yeah. i yeah. believe it, it creates like when you cup it 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 exaggerates the hypercardioid You also get more thing. of that um, plosive effects. Yeah. What do you call it? I yeah, because the, the um, proximity effect. Yeah, there we go. Uh, yeah, you get more low end if you cup the mic and scream into it, like like the stereotypical example is. But you get different sort of... Um, it's different... Reset, like a different response from the microphone. Like it, it becomes more narrow, I believe. Yeah. I'm sure it's more narrow because you're you're stopping it from rejecting. So maybe it becomes more wide. Either way, the point is it changes it when you cup the microphone. So that's that's the thing to remember. And so just by throwing your hand against the grill, if you throw one hand at one side, you you're changing the sort of the polar patterns field slightly. So it's it's things to consider. And this is why people like Junos, like analog vintage Junos, because they all sound and behave slightly differently, like with the Moogs. Whereas if you've got, say, uh, a Raxon that's a digital ROM player, you would you would hope that they would sound the same from unit to unit. Maybe with the exception of some some differences in noise. Yeah, yeah, noise aging and like like you say imperfections. Yeah, but um, this is why people go after these types of equipment because everybody wants a unique sound and you go well you know i remember the um the war on drugs breaking down their equipment and one of them's got a juno that the chorus was broken on so they just yeah. re retrofitted it 
somewhere else, didn't they? Or did it? Did they take it yeah. out so they could put it somewhere else? No, they they just had the broken chorus and used, I believe it was a TC Electronics cor- Juno chorus pedal. Yeah. So that they could have it, but opposite. Because I think the idea with the Junos is that the chorus is one of the flimsiest parts, probably because it's just a one-button thing. You can just smash it through the, the Yeah, front. so if if you can't activate it and you don't know how to repair it, or maybe the chorus circuit actually gets broken at some point, if if it's quite complicated. Because I suppose if your LFOs stop working in your Juno, in the middle of your chorus circuit, then your chorus doesn't really work anymore. Definitely won't sound desirable. If your LFO, if an LFO in a chorus stops working, it will turn into a basically a detune, and the detune oh, just a and static the chorus, detune, yeah, yeah are very yeah. different sounds. So that might be part of it, maybe because I'm just trying to think about in the circuit of a chorus in a Juno, like with the hardware, what would be the component that stops working? I would have thought maybe an op amp that drives an LFO. Yeah, and part of this as well comes into like the way an artist or band will record. And what's so fascinating is even though the end point is often the same, which is just a 30 to one hour length, 30 minutes to one hour length album, so many bands will approach that process completely differently. Like you two will go in and they'll just vibe until they get ideas. And then some bands will come in there with an entire sort of set of songs ready to go and rehearsed. Or say like like say Maroon Five said that they just started building their their tracks in machine so they would know the songs when they went into the studio to save them money. Yeah, well, their their full premise wasn't it was that well they used to pay for studios to write the songs in and they realised if they did it all with machine at home, then instead of paying what could you could only assume is thousands or tens of thousands of dollars on studio time, they just walked in with a bunch of sessions on machine and just recorded the bits that they didn't have, which, which number one explains Maroon 5's sort of trajectory in terms of how they sound when you're listening through the albums. But number two, I mean, that's just purely economic. I mean, they're, they're just looking at the path of least resistance. How do we get into the studio and be in there quick? And how do we save ourselves money? or more importantly, maybe for them, the label money, or they keep more of their advance because they're not using it, or blah, 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 however it works. Yeah, so it's just one of those things, because a lot of people, like, when they get into music, if you're in the production sort of mindset and you want to self-produce, you almost feel like you're expected to build your own studio. That's sort of like the way Instagram and that sort of culture is going, is that everybody needs their own, like, battle station, as they call, like, the gaming equivalents, you know? And that... Obviously, that's full of your own gear, and that's tailor-made to you as an individual. It might just be a laptop and Fruity Loops. Yeah. Or it could be literally Abbey Road. It depends how much money and space you have, I suppose, and if you care. Yeah, and it also depends on your workflow, because you see a lot of like mixed consoles where people just put the laptop on top of all the EQs and, and stuff because they're not really interested in using the actual console. The console's just there to impress clients as they walk in, essentially. And as well, like um, Chris Lord Alge said in regards to uh, sort of making his Waves plugins, he said that um, a lot of the channels on his um, SSL console sort of have imperfections because his ears so tuned, he can hear where the tolerances are different, essentially, with the pots, meaning that if he cues two channels exactly the same, 
they're not actually cued the same, you know. So he sort of modeled his equipment based off which channels sounded best to him so that, you know, he could use the best channel on every, you know, insert in his mix. Because even though he has the real thing, the real thing's so varied and has these, as they say, tolerances uh, different on the actual pots for your EQ, it it means that, you know, if, if you're so specific, you want to know, say you're a surgical like EDM producer, you want to know that you're boosting a certain frequency exactly as it should be boosted. Well, that's hard to do in analog because, again, as we said earlier, a lot of the components sound different. It's like we say with guitar pedals, a lot of the time they're completely different pedals. It's just they've got the same casing because they was just getting um, parts that got, the job roughly done, like people say with the rap pedal, every different incarnation where they changed it from the white face to the black face or the original, it's all slightly different parts, which essentially makes it a very different sounding pedal. Uh, whether you think that's important or not. Now you can probably get the same rap sound out of all of them, but it's the subtleties that are different. It's if you set them all at 12 o'clock that maybe they all start to sound very different. Maybe you like again pushed all the way to full and you get a pedal that's got a lighter tolerance. So when you push the gain all the way to full, it doesn't break up as much. And that might be the difference between somebody saying, well, this rap pedal is clearly the best. And maybe that one happened to be one that came out in the 80s. Or maybe it was a brand new one. Who knows? It depends, doesn't it? And that's the thing with recording. You know, I think before the digital sort of takeover we've seen, it was a lot more nuanced. And I suppose what you can hear you know, in the way music is produced now is music is a lot more consistent, you know, because back in the day, it's hard to make a consistent record if your equipment isn't consistent in itself. But, you know, again, is that where part of the magic comes from? You know, I believe Tame Impala, they're massive on hardware and using like the weirdest stuff they can find and using desks to mix and some things, because again, that that is all adding different flavor that say, the person in the studio next door might not be using. And that could be the difference between that song having a vibe, whatever that is, and not having a vibe. So I suppose that's that's the sort of thought process we've been talking about today is do you want to have sterile sort of sounding recordings? Because that is very, very desirable. And it's almost expected in a lot of genres. Yeah. Or do you want to embrace sort of the chaos and the sort of nature of hardware and I suppose the lineage of classic pop and classic rock and, and roots-based genres to make your, say, more sterile in-the-box recording sound more live and more life-induced. Sort of and this is where you get a lot of hybrid recording. And I think a lot of people now, they have their tried-and-tested door doing what they need it to do what what's consistent when they need it but then you have all these flavor boxes basically around to say well on this recording i want a little bit of flavor so i'm going to run it through four racks that aren't even affecting the signal just to get the electronic sound and yeah. these are the differences in different sort of production mentalities and hopefully you don't know all this anyway but we just thought we'd talk about it because a lot of people don't see these documentaries because they're tucked away and it it's actually a nightmare to find some of them because oh, you've got to hard. know they're there. And uh, 
yeah, that's been our thoughts on just recording as a process and equipment in general. Um, anything else to add, Pierre? Um, just think about if you're a producer and you're listening to this, think about what you use that falls into this clinical digital category and then think about what are you using that doesn't factor into it. And maybe you need to think as well, if you're using a space, are you making the music that suits your space with the equipment that suits your music? Or are you, you know, because you can't really make, or well, you can, but you, it's going to be difficult to make clinical sounding EDM or dubstep in a really analog studio and vice versa. It might be tough if you're trying to make really, really, you know, like like party rock sort of ACDC style music. If you're making that in a really clinical studio, maybe think about reapproaching how you're recording. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Yeah.